Many of you recognize this modern-day expression that Kelsey's given us as that of Mary in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually a good technique to do with Bible stories, to imagine them today. Let's read, however, how this story is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town called Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own old age. She, who was said to be barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. May it be to me as you have said. That's Mary's response. It is similar to Isaiah's response. Isaiah, Christian tradition records Isaiah being the prophet who predicts that, in fact, a young woman from the lineage, the house of David, will conceive. Isaiah himself has a response hundreds of years earlier when he has a visitor and he responds, Here I am, Lord, send me. Now we hear the words of Mary, let it be to me as you have said. Mary and Isaiah, they share this sort of gutsy, gutsy spirit, the two of them. Do with me as you want, God. Maybe some of you here understand that this morning. I don't. And I'll just tell you at the onset, I don't understand the spirit that says, Let it be unto me, as you have decided, God. I don't understand how Christian tradition summarizes Mary as sort of this quiet, submissive, simple, yes, God, I'll do what you ask. In fact, many, many sermons and far many more commentaries describe the attributes of Mary as agreeable, ordinary, cooperative, as we all should be, they quickly summarize. Everyone should say yes to God. I can think of a lot of responses to give the angel Gabriel. None of them are quiet and submissive. Women, if you could imagine that kind of a visit. 
I can imagine many things coming out of my mouth, most of them unpleasant, and probably arguing, I am not, but you are. I am not pregnant. Oh, yes, you are. I don't understand the spirit that Mary has, the spirit that Isaiah had. We have very little information about Mary in the Bible. Luke gives us more than Matthew does. For that I'm grateful. But even Luke gives us very little embedded in these first two chapters of the story of Jesus and how Jesus comes into the earth. Luke, in fact, spends more time identifying the names of Roman rulers and the specific regions where all of this is to take place, being certain that he has the historical locations and the historical realities in place. Luke spends more time on those verses than he does on this one conversation between Mary and Gabriel. And I want to say, come on, Luke. There is something metaphysical happening here. A virgin is conceiving. There's a a non-human voice being heard. There's a conversation with profound theological impact personally and for all humanity. Luke, could you just give us a little bit more? I find myself asking. We know very little, and we are left with our own imaginations And we've used them down through the centuries in the Christian tradition. Probably Mary is a little younger than what we saw here with Kelsey this morning. And that is disgusting spaghetti. I just got to look at it. Probably 13, 14, 15 years old. We don't know anything of Mary's parents from the Bible. Mary is probably being taken care of by Joseph's father and lives in a house somewhere attached to Joseph's family while she waits for their marriage. She's poor. Joseph is poor. Maybe she scrubs floors and picks olives and preserves them as a way to contribute to the family income. I don't know. They come from this little no-name ghetto called Nazareth, and that's really what it is. I hesitated this morning in first service to liken Nazareth to anything around here for fear that someone lives in Mentone or... So I thought Norco would be safer. (laughs) Nazareth is so unknown. It does not even make it into the historical accounts, the most well-known histories written around the time of Jesus. Nazareth. They're from Nazareth. We know that Mary is one party in a binding contract and Joseph is the other. They're responsible to each other, already having all the responsibilities of marriage because they are betrothed. And they know that people are watching. They know they're obligated to one another's families. They know they're obligated to this little no-name village. They know the reputation of the village matters not only to them, but to everyone else. Of course they know. It is into this setting that, that... that Luke then describes in this most minimalist fashion that Mary gets a messenger who announces, you're going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And Mary says, all right, let it be. You can look at the art that's been recorded in the centuries, between the 13th and 19th centuries, let's say, and you can almost watch the artists wrestling with such little lack of information as well. And it is fun to sort of see what 
what attributes and what characteristics make their way into the Christian tradition as the story of Angel Gabriel and Mary, what we call the Annunciation, as this visit is painted. Often we'll find that Mary looks a bit angelic herself, usually poised and graceful and gracious-looking, We often find Mary in a library or reading books or close to books as if that's something noble for the mother of Jesus to be doing. Or maybe she'll grab a book and read for herself if indeed what the angel says is in the prophecy. Oftentimes there is this beam of light coming in down on Mary's face or her upper body illuminating her and her decision and and frequently just one bloom of a flower. We heard earlier, lo, how a rose air blooming. Just one bloom of a flower often makes it into the picture with Mary and Gabriel. Gabriel usually comes ornately fashioned as some kind of angelic creature you can only imagine in storytelling like this, and oftentimes more than one angel in the pictures. But the one picture that grabbed my attention the most as perhaps representing the biblical account is this one done in the 19th century by an American painter named Tanner, where we see an alone Mary sitting in a stone-cold room by herself with this midnight visit. And if you look at her face, we do see terror there, alone what must have felt like a message that would ruin her life and ruin Joseph's life. What the angel announces is really beyond scandalous. And it is not news for Mary and Joseph. It has never been proper for a woman to become pregnant outside of marriage. Don't we all know this? Were you not taught that also growing up, ladies? Just don't come home. You can say that word in church pregnant. Gentlemen, were you not told? Don't get a girl. That's not news for Mary and Joseph. In all civilized society, that's not been looked on favorably. In fact, I remember my grandmother who just knew God was coming in her lifetime, which meant I was never going to be married. She, she gave me this whole book explaining what married couples do and reminding me I should never do this because God was coming and I wouldn't have time to get married. Everyone knows. When I was at the academy last spring after a week of prayer, Mr. K invited me into Bible class with the seniors. And he said something like, you know, Pastor Chris is going to just sort of talk with us, just share wisdom about life, whatever that is. Before I said anything, there was a kid in the back of the room, a male student who said, we know, don't get pregnant. Don't we all know? Some summertime reading I did this summer, a book called The Girls Who Went Away. Storytelling from women who lived between the years of 1945 and 1973, when one and a half million babies were relinquished for adoption, usually non-familial, unrelated adoption. It's interesting reading to me because, as many of you know, I'm adopted, and I was adopted during this time period. The girls who went away. The book says everyone knew at least one girl who went away, 
and everyone knows where they send girls like that. Society demanded that we surrender if we became pregnant. There is a place for you. You don't even deserve it, some of these women say. They had us give up our babies and treated it like we were dumping clothes off at the Salvation Army. Motherhood was synonymous with marriage. You couldn't be an unwed mother. If you weren't married, your child was, we all know the term. Chances are the baby wasn't wanted anyway. It certainly was unwanted by society. The book goes on and on. It is not news what happens to girls who get pregnant. And in this book, it's very interesting what doesn't happen to their partners who often go unnamed. So it isn't news for Mary and Joseph that she isn't supposed to turn up pregnant. It is a social stigma we've lived with for a long, long time. It is beyond scandalous. The angel is essentially saying, will it be okay if we ruin your reputation, Mary? Will it be okay if perhaps no one ever talks to you again, but they'll all be talking about you? Is it all right if we put a wedge between your relationship with Joseph where he might not marry you? He's a good guy. Maybe there'll just be a few late-night conversations. He's understanding. Is it all right? Can you bear the shame and the guilt on the faces of your parents and your in-laws and those people in your village? Can you be okay with being the family that no one will ever forget, Mary? I don't know if you can tell, but I get just a little bit irritated with these simple summaries of Mary's behavior. Oh, she quickly said, yes, let it be unto me. She answers yes to the God of the universe. There was nothing simple about her situation. Her very real-life consequences are this. If, if they find out that she's pregnant and before they send her away, and by the way, what does the Bible say happens? Where does she go? To Elizabeth's. Interesting, huh? The girls who get sent away. Before she gets sent away, if they find out she's pregnant, there is such a thing called an honor killing where her father or her brother are allowed to put her to death because she's shamed the family. And they just want to silence the problem. If that doesn't happen, certainly the town has the right under the law to stone her. And if they can find out who the father of the baby is, he can be stoned as well. And Joseph is able, under the law, legally, he can divorce her. No problem with that. These are the very real consequences that Mary is looking at. i just like to go back and look at the text again one more time and not move quite so quickly because there is in the text a moment when Gabriel visits Mary. When he greets her, he says to her, You are highly favored, which we could translate nicely, You have found grace. You sit in a position of grace. That is the word there. You're positioned well with God, Mary, Gabriel tells her. And Mary has this immediate response after hearing it. In verse 29, this is the New International Version version. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
Now, it doesn't quite capture what the original language says. And if you read the Message Bible, it says Mary was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind the greeting. That doesn't capture it either. The King James Bible, the New American Standard, they both capture it in sort of this two-part response Mary has. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. She was troubled at his saying. That means she's immediately agitated. She's troubled. She's churning. It's not just a little bit. It's a lot. And it's the only time in the New Testament that word gets used. Mary is agitated. And it's not agitated at seeing a visitor. You might wonder if an angel burst into your room, you'd be a little agitated also, yes? But the text says she is agitated at his words, at what he is saying. She's not startled at his intrusion. It's what he's saying to her, and she begins to cast in her mind what this might mean. That is to say, she begins to reason. She begins to pull different ideas together. She begins to deliberate inside of herself. What does this mean? She begins to carefully think. She begins to use her brain and do hard work internally churning, struggling, agitated, thinking carefully. This is Mary, and I just want to rest on that text this morning because in that text, I find a Mary I can relate to. I see right there a very human Mary uh, uh, saying, wait, wait, but wait, let, let, let me just think, did I hear you correctly? In that text, I see Mary trying to make sense of what's happening to her. Maybe this is why the artists portray Mary going back to the scripture, looking for books, looking for a way to reason and think things through because, because we're shown that we're told in the text. Mary does that. So is it the case Mary goes back to these scrolls and to these books and she begins to read what everyone knows, what all the Hebrews know. It's been in their texts way back since Second Samuel in our Bible. Second Samuel, where the prophet Nathan says, someone from the house of David, David will reign and the kingdom will be forever. And everyone knows that didn't happen because Judah fell and Israel fell and the kingdom didn't last forever. And here's a messenger telling Mary, but it's going to happen to you and maybe she's reading and trying to make sense the whole world is watching is the god of the hebrews going to reign forever or isn't he and mary is churning and she's agitated and she's thinking carefully it is internal chaos it's not just a five minute little be it unto me as you want god do you see that she's wrestling with what she's been told it is interesting to me at least, that this chaos seems to come at the hand of the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace we discussed last week. That is, this news comes from the one who's supposed to be bringing this shalom, who's supposed to be setting all things right in the world. The news comes, however, with this other command. It really is a command to Mary. Do not be, what is it? Afraid. Mary is told in the middle of all this, do not be afraid, which is similar as saying, shalom, be at ease, be at peace, be well, be still, be whole. Know that you're in God's care. Do not be afraid, Mary is told by the angel. How can this be? Because the next verse says, verse 37, at the end of this this little part of the story, nothing is impossible with God. 
Best translated, it's a double negative there, for nothing is not doable with this God. Do you hear that? There is nothing that I've just told you, Mary, about yourself or about Elizabeth that is not doable for the God, so be at peace. That seems impossible, but you have a God who masters the impossible. That's what the text says. That's why Mary, even in the midst of all this, could really experience shalom. There is wholeness and ease and rest. And maybe here is where your story and my story touches Mary from Luke chapter 1. Whether you're an adult, a male, a female, a child, wherever we are, maybe here's where our story touches Mary's. Every one of you who can hear my voice this morning, you sit in a position of favor with God. You sit, you enjoy a position of grace from where you are positioned in this highly favorable place. You are not at harm. It is well with you. That's what the text says, so that even when you see disharmony all around you, it is possible in the messy circumstances in life, as we look at what seems to be impossible, it is possible for you and I to be smack in the middle of God's shalom, God's perfect peace, God's perfect care, God's perfect harmony, God's perfect rest, but all we see around us is chaos. It is possible to be right in the middle of God's shalom and still feel anxious and confused and worried and frightened. It is a question that was asked when we spoke of Revelation, the months of September and October. How can you say, do not be afraid, when you see all the chaos and turmoil that's unleashed in the book of Revelation? And here in Mary's story, we find you don't have to be afraid because the most difficult details in life belong to God. They are not yours and they are not mine. And we have a God who does not run from these difficulties. So you don't have to create your own peace, shalom, wholeness, rest, safety, and security. You simply have to be at ease in God's shalom. One of my favorite philosophers says this about living with God. It is to live with the triune God is to accept the anxiety of feeling in suspense and incomplete. While you're in the middle of God's care, you could feel in suspense and a little bit incomplete. You could feel worried and confused and frightened. And I have to believe that's what Mary felt. Just this average, unassuming peasant girl from a no-name village, Nazareth. And even while feeling all of that, the Bible assures you, nothing is not doable for your God. Often people make a conversation out of these characters in Scripture that they're ordinary people, that they're just normal people like you and I. Nobody knows them. They're not famous. They're not special. They don't have wonderful qualities and attributes. Just sort of regular people doing their messy life. And somehow God shows up and something happens. I was reading the story of Mary, who is one of these ordinary peasant girls, while we were sitting in the airport during the Thanksgiving holiday as we were traveling. Now, if you like to watch people, just the airport is the place to do it. 
I could miss a flight while watching people in the airport. And and I'm reading this text about Mary, this average ordinary peasant girl, and I've read somebody's idea that really the whole, the big idea about Mary is that God just chose someone unassuming and ordinary and did this great thing. And, And perhaps that is part of the story. But I'm sitting in the airport watching all sorts of ordinary people pass by. The first is a family. And they're, they, they have these little sacks in their hands of Dunkin' Donuts. They've bought some breakfast. But they're complaining that all they could find in the airport is Dunkin' Donuts. And shouldn't there be something more to eat in this airport? Er, er, er. Complaining, complaining, walking along. And they come across this little stand that has bagels and fruit. And one says to the other, well, there, there's your fruit and bagel. Get your fruit. And... No, I have donuts now. I'll just eat. Do- get your fruit and bagels. Just stop and get your bagels. Just like this, walking through the airport. Didn't stop and get the fruit and bagels. It's better to just complain about it and move on. Then comes a family from the other side where where people buy magazines and gum and all that good stuff before you get on the airplane, and they've purchased four bottles of water. A family of six, they sat on this side. They sit down and begin to undo their water to drink, and they realize they only have three bottles of water. So the girls, the teenage girls, begin to think about this, and they tell Dad, go back and get your money. You only got three bottles. You paid for four. And Dad, no, nah, don't worry about it. Dad, go back and get your money. They ripped you off. You know, it's so dramatic. It was a, it was a conspiracy theory to rip Dad off. Go get your money, Dad. That's fine. It's, a you know, a buck for a bottle of water. Dad, get your money. Pretty soon all four kids are arguing. Mom comes back. What happened? All hell broke loose while she was gone. They're arguing over one bottle of water. Pretty soon this little sweet little couple comes bent over, hunched over, and they're just kind of pulling their bodies through the airport as feeble as they are. And, and he's got bags and she's hitting them with her arm just like this. Let me carry a bag. Let me ca- Give me one of those bags. Give me a bag. Give me a... If she had a cane, she would have just whacked him one. And he's mumbling through the airport. Let me carry my own bags. They're balancing me. Can't you see? They're balancing me. <laughs> If you take one, I'll be off balance. They go down there. She's in front of him. Just give me a bag. Just give me a bag. Are you identifying? And then another family. This one got me. Two boys, if I had to guess, preschool and grade three or four. And the mom takes out of the activity bag these brand new journals and tells the boys, these are your travel journals. You'll write down what happens on your vacation. (laughs) Come on, it's what every seven-year-old boy wants to do. (laughs) And the boys look at each other. What do do we write? You write what's happening. So the older boys quizzes the younger boy. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate our flight? I don't know. Don't ask me a hard question like that. On a scale of 1 to 10, how was the atmosphere on the airplane we just got off of? Little boy says, Mommy, I don't know what those questions mean. Is that what I have to write down? The mother turns around. No, you just write about your trip. Well, well, what? Whatever you want to write, you just write about your trip. So the older boy begins to write about his trip. Got up at 6 a.m., went to the Boston International Airport. We boarded flight 156 at such and such a time. And pretty soon the mother says, what have you written? And so he reads, got up at 6 a.m. That's not what you write in a travel journal. Nobody wants to read that. I closed the journals, put them down. Great idea. 
I'm sitting in the middle of the airport just watching these ordinary people walk by, and it strikes me that we are all in the same predicament. I don't know a single person who has things together relationally. I don't know a single family that doesn't go through that. Everybody is pretty much occupied the same way. We go to our jobs. We try and make our livings. We, we try and take these family vacations. We do the holidays. We try and do good in the world. We're just regular, ordinary, messed up people. And it occurred to me watching these families who look an awful lot like us. It is precisely to people like us that God comes and says, I have a proposition. Are you willing to entertain it? And when God finds someone who says, let me wrestle with that, there can be a little more of the presence of God in this world. I thought I would come to the end of my study of Mary in the Gospel of Luke with a list of what God does internally, how God works out of our chaos, this experience of shalom. And that's why I've called it the anatomy of shalom. There must be some list we could all read together. And, and I've learned after studying Mary, actually, God and the Spirit are just waiting to, to find one receptive person. I see God does this one person at a time. And when God finds the one honest person willing to do the self-examination, God is able to say, do not be afraid. Nothing is undoable for us. There were two artists commissioned. They were asked to draw the perfect picture of peace. What does peace We've been calling Shalom now these two weeks. What does peace look like? Just paint it, could you? And they called expert judges from around the world and, and time for the unveiling of the portraits. The first artist had painted a picture of a, a farm and this idyllic valley, this location that was beautiful, surrounded by the perfectly mowed farm fields and farmer coming in, completing his day of work, goes into this little farmhouse where, of course, his wife has handed him his hot supper and sits down to eat, and all the children are smiling nicely, playing by the fireplace, and, and, the, farm, and the painter said, this is peace. And the judges looked at the picture and said, wow, this is peace. Look at this idyllic, tranquil, serene scene. For sure, this is peace. But just to be fair, we'll look at the other picture. And they took the veil off of the second picture. And underneath, that artist had painted this majestic, cascading, kind of coarse, harsh-looking waterfall. And out of this waterfall was coming these huge, raging drops of water spraying everywhere. It was kind of, just kind of fierce-looking. But from the side of the waterfall, there was this little rock, and on this rock there was one branch growing, and at the end of this one growing branch there was a bird's nest, and in the bird's nest he painted one mother bird sitting up on the edge of the nest, singing and chirping her heart out in the middle of this cascading, pounding, drenching waterfall. And the judges said, ah, no. That is it. This is peace. 
tranquility and celebration in the midst of turmoil. This is it. You're highly favored today, sitting in a position of grace from which you cannot be moved. Do not fear. Nothing is impossible for this God. May those fathomless billows of love be experienced by us all. Amen.
pray. For racing down to us with your love, we say thank you. For being God with us right now, we say thank you. For giving us your perfect shalom, for creating that, we say thank you. May we trust that enough now to be God with flesh in our world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.